0: The Supreme Court just finished hearing arguments by Florida and Texas defending their laws that limit the ability of social media platforms to censor speech. My opinion might surprise you. And here's something fun. Robert Barnes told me his opinion when those laws were first passed. They may not even been passed yet. So I'll give you a little blast from the past. The Monica Perez Show starts now. So the Supreme Court's in session and they have been listening to arguments by Florida and Texas about some laws they passed a few years ago that was in response to Trump being banned from Twitter. Their stated goal was to prevent Silicon Valley and their liberal ideology from suppressing conservative viewpoints on social media platforms. So there are a lot of nuances to the question, both the big picture is this possible? Are they allowed to do it? Do we want them to do it? And also, are states allowed to do it if it conflicts with federal law? I'm not going to get into every single nuance. I'm just going to give you the basics, tell you what I think about it, and then play some uh, an excerpt from a conversation I had with Robert Barnes three years ago, where he added some really uh, unique insights that I thought were well worthwhile. So I'll tell you what I think, you'll hear what he thinks, and then we'll wrap it up. I'm going to read you some excerpts from the summary on the Florida government page because even the Wall Street Journal, who acts like they're, you know, kind of Republican or conservative or whatever, totally, in my opinion, are misrepresenting what these laws say. So let's just talk the Florida one. Uh, This is from their summary. The bill establishes a violation for social media deplatforming of a political candidate or journalistic enterprise and requires a social media platform to meet certain requirements when it restricts speech by users. They also heavily fine social media for, quote, willfully deplatforming a candidate for political office. And they also spend a lot of text in this bill, ultimately a law, dedicated to banning violators from doing business with public entities. I didn't actually even get into that too much, uh, but that's what a lot of the language is about, but the real, what we find interesting is in the beginning. So just to say what those things are, a political candidate is like well-defined, he's running for office or she's running for office. A journalistic enterprise is something very large, has large viewership revenue broadcasting um, capabilities. They define that in the bill. And they also define the social media platform as being over $100 million in annual revenue or over 100 million users in a month. So they're really just talking about a few big guys. And normally, I wouldn't distinguish because I feel like free enterprise is free enterprise, but there is a big distinction there and it isn't all about free enterprise. So we'll get into that. So journalists, political candidates, and social media platforms are the big players here, but it also affects the actual users. And they're saying that social media must publish the rules that they employ for censorship, for deplatforming, or for shadow banning, must apply those rules universally and must allow people, this is in the Florida one, to opt out of what's called post-prioritization or shadow banning in favor of chronological posting, but just for you. So if you personally don't like their curation function, which is they prioritize posts or they suppress posts, um, I don't like that, but if you personally don't want to have that function applied to what you see, you can just ask for it to be chronological. I, you know, I don't know. That results in a very junky feed. But anyway, that's what they ask you to have an option. Another thing that I kind of liked about the bill was... If you get deplatformed, they have to give you 60 days to retrieve your content. Now, when I was deplatformed from WordPress, I lost a lot of valuable content. I only had seven days to get it back. I didn't get it all back. It was a complete jumbled mess, and I wouldn't even have gotten it back then, except for a friend of mine, a listener, said, you got to act quickly, and this is what you're looking for. It was totally obscured. So that would be an improvement. Another element of the bill is that uh, the law was that social media platforms can be sued by users for failing to apply consistently certain standards for censorship or deplatforming or for not giving them proper notice. So right now, it's kind of up in the air if you can even sue internet companies because of this old thing called Section 230, the 27 words, I think it's 27 words that created the internet. That, I've talked about that before and we will talk about it again. That's just, that is not addressed directly here, although there are implications. And specifically, I would say if these guys are allowed to curate, will they not then be responsible to curate? Which I think would open a whole nother can of worms. Anyway, um, there was a really good article or a comprehensive article in uh, Lawfare Media, which I think is a Brookings Institution publication, unfortunately, but it was it was a good comprehensive article, which I'll put in the show notes. They kind of put it in a nutshell here about the Florida law. It says censorship is defined broadly to include, among other things, appending notes to posts, content removal and, of course, shadow banning described in the bill as an action by a social media platform through any means, whether natural by a person or an algorithm to limit or eliminate the exposure of a user or content or material posted by a user or other users of the social media platform. So I'm shadow banned. Basically, I have 19,000 Twitter users and like nobody ever sees my posts. (laughs) You get like two likes, but I used to get more. So I feel like that's probably what's happening. And I've heard that from people. They never see my posts in their feed occasionally. Rarely will see any posts in my feed. And I've noticed a pattern that if it's personal, I get get more exposure. So I feel like there is an algorithm that is pretty tuned into what the content is when it decides, for targeted users like me, I assume, how they're going to curate that. And um, they actually get into this a little bit when they talk about like, Okay, you're going to ban anti-semites, anti-Semitic speech, but are you going to ban their cat videos? <laughs> so <laughs> this is obviously something that they put they know, you know, they they know that the curation function doesn't just apply to users, but it's a it's a reflection of both the user and the content that that user is trying to post. Now, what I did not like, what bummed me out and I don't think it's an accident. I think, you know, I think everything's basically pretty manipulated that neither law has been in force while this litigation litigation proceeds so we don't get to see the impact that this has had how it would operate in practice if it wouldn't if it would be a complete disaster or if it would be successful it would be nice if we could see that because it's completely theoretical at this point another observation by this lawfare media article is and i i agree with this both states argued that editorial discretion does not apply to social media platforms. And they wrote that the laws do not regulate inherently expressive conduct because platforms act or at least portray themselves as a digital public square. Therefore, any moderation is akin not to speech or expression, but only to maintaining that public online space. This is really important. Is it a public square? Is it a public space or a private space? Is it? Um, you know, and that goes also, there's another question that, is this a publisher or is this a common carrier? Is this a curator, an editor, or is it uh, just a conduit? So let's take head on the question of the public square. It says, Texas Solicitor General Aaron Nielsen said, I believe this is from the Wall Street Journal, today millions of Americans don't visit friends or family or even go to work in person. Everybody is online. The modern public square. But if platforms that passively host the speech of billions of people are themselves the speakers and can discriminate, there will be no public square. So you could say, well, you can still go to the public square. You're just being lazy. But I would argue, A, that COVID ended that. That was possible, but COVID didn't allow it. It transformed our habits by force into this public square. And my guess is, Even if you went to Washington, I bet there's less space that you're allowed to be on to protest. They have laws about protesting that are already unconstitutional, in my opinion. But I would go further and say, you know, one big question that kept coming up that that Kavanaugh, Roberts, a lot of people addressed was this is a private enterprise and is not required to follow the First Amendment. And I would say two things. As a libertarian, of course, I would say that if it is a private enterprise, it has unrestricted rights to limit who use it. But I would argue that it is not a public enterprise. And then I would also say that other laws and rulings actually don't support that. So this might be one of those cases where libertarians die by the sword, but they don't live by it. We have public spaces which libertarians don't want because you can't apply these strict private property rules to public spaces. So we have public spaces. There are freedoms and restrictions on those public spaces. Some of them are tried and true laws that people rely on. And I feel like, okay, you could potentially start there with how you deal with these quasi-public spaces. Also, there are laws that people can hand out flyers or make political speeches in front of supermarkets and malls at at fairs and festivals and stuff because and i and i think forget the name of this one but i believe i'm i recall correctly one of the arguments for that that held up was if you are in a place that uses police protection you're in the public and you have to accommodate public speech. And I actually think that's crap because your own house, you're going to use police protection and you don't have to accommodate public space. So I don't like that ruling, but it is a ruling. And I would say the internet and all these companies are using patent laws and therefore that would hold. But I would say more to the point is that these companies were created by the government or government entities or quasi-government entities. Uh, I often quote an article on courts, an online magazine that called how the NSA created Google, something like that. Um, I know Sergey Brin, who I believe was basically attributed to be the creator of Google, won a contest, a government contest or a contest that flowed through MIT, but with government dollars. Facebook picked up where LifeLog left off he you could say that was just clearly a continuum from a CIA project. In Twitter, I mean, even Elon Musk, his entire fortune rests on government subsidies and government cooperation and government contracts. Like he obviously is an inside job. LinkedIn is one of the big ones, too, that whether it was established by the government or simply cooperates with it for whatever privileges it gets. It's obviously, you know, is a quasi-public entity. And the problem with all of that is these things were established. They were, they were given advantages of money or um, permissions, or you know, winners were picked early on in every segment of the public space to the point where they had an advantage to become the monolithic incumbent. And what I mean by that is like you have Meta, you have X, you have Google. They dominate their spaces, they're the only ones there and to unseat them would be very difficult. Oh, and section 230 allowed them to grow without any they couldn't be sued, they couldn't would not be held accountable for anything. And now if they do close the door in section 230, you've you've actually Kept It it will now be impossible to ever unseat these people. And they are the public square. They are the de facto public square. And after COVID, there is no turning back. And I would further argue that was done on purpose. I read an insider, you know, a military analysis for the military from like 25 years ago. It was like the year 2000 or 2001 saying that we we could control the public square much more easily in the digital space, which they were anticipating. And I believe that that book by Adrian, that article by Adrian Vermule and, um, Cass Sunstein, which talks about, I think it's called conspiracy theories or whatever, and invents cognitive infiltration talks about how much easier it is for them to, to junk up a political movement if it's online because they can just act like they're more than one person, act like a different person, all that kind of stuff. So they wanted it. Their money is there. And and it is the public square. And I would go finally to say that they created it so that they could censor the information, so they could curate it. So to me, they shouldn't be allowed to because it is the government. This has now been where our First Amendment takes place. Uh, The other big question is that, is it an edited publication like a newspaper, or is it, you know, just a pipe like a telegram company or a phone? And I would say, and I think somebody brought this up kind of in a way, in the argument, A newspaper, every single piece of content goes through the editor's fingers before it gets onto the page. It is possible and actually impossible not to have him curate that. If you're talking about having a platform where millions of people can post, you can't, I mean, the nature of the thing is that it is not curated by the entity. So that seems very clear. I, you know, so I would say that goes towards like you cannot censor. You certainly can't be responsible for censoring because it's not really possible. And they can put it in an algorithm, but some of these laws really are taught, you know, trying to address the fact that the algorithms are rigged. Uh, And as far as private versus public companies in the public space, Robert Barnes brings up a great argument that he says libertarians never mentioned. So that's another reason I wanted to play. I was going to just play little clips, but I think I play the whole excerpt of us, our discussion on this topic.
1: Uh, so let me just
0: read the First Amendment real quick, just so we know what we're talking about, because sometimes the words matter and we forget what they are. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So this is all about Congress. Now, I've talked to Eric Buchanan about the 14th Amendment, making the First Amendment apply to government more generally, including state governments. You know, he moved me a little closer to that, but I still, I'm a textualist. (laughs) Like, read the text. So Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech So Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, they actually did that during COVID, which just pissed me off. But whatever. I will say the The reason they talk about Congress is Congress was the one making the laws. But now that we have other branches of government making laws, the executive branch makes laws, administrative state, the DOJ, FBI, those are all like executive, but they make all these laws. So I'm going to say because Congress has allowed their power to be spread across other agencies, other branches of government, I'm going to count that the First Amendment applies to all of it. Congress empowered those yada, yada. I would say that that these little companies that are created by the governments, but we're told they're not, do have to adhere to the restraints on government and the Bill of Rights. There were other, a lot of other briefs were given up, like not just Florida and Texas, but amicus curiae briefs, friend of the court briefs. So I think Trump even gave one up, but I read that many of the briefs other briefs also pointed out that allowing content moderation, allowing it supports freedom of association. And see that's the thing, I do I do want freedom of association and I do want content moderation and I do want places where you can r- restrict and limit people. But those big guys that were established by the government, they are the government in my opinion. And I would say one way to completely cure the problem would be to have platforms that are for pay. So like if you have a private club, if you go to a restaurant and they say, give me a dollar, this used to happen in Texas, give me a dollar. It was a private club and you could smoke there, even though the law said you couldn't smoke. And I'm thinking like, why doesn't Twitter do that? Why don't you just pay? Just have to pay. And of course the answer is because that's not what they want. What they want is for everyone to be there and to be only there so that they can curate your speech. And if they, they could actually make money by charging And so I looked, I was like, well, how do they make money? Like, would that be better or worse? Would it destroy their model? They've been around for 10 years, or I found financial data for them for 10 years. They only made money in two of those 10 years, in 2018 and 2019. And and during COVID, when I'm sure it exploded, they made nothing. So, or they made less than nothing. So it's not, it's not a finance, these are not financial decisions, which I think is a bit of a tell. Uh, but but that argument about freedom of association goes on to say platforms like Reddit and Discord encourage smaller communities to form their own standards and guidelines, and moderation is critical for fostering those associations. Yes, I think it's great, and um, I think if in the beginning the government hadn't chosen winners, given them tech, given them money, given them an open door policy where they were above the law. We would, uh, some of them would have failed when they ran out of money instead of soldiering on for decades. And then you would have a much more robust and competitive field. You might not have one big public square where you feel like you can scream at the top of your lungs and redress the government for grievances. You'd still have to go to the public square. And you would have these little places that were appropriate for what you're interested in, which would be, I think, better for everybody. But one of the reasons I wanted to address this. Generally speaking, anyway, was that there was some misrepresentation in the reporting of this very scary stuff, which I actually had to pause and say, Wow, is that really true? So, in the Wall Street Journal, the article basically ends with saying a decision in Monday's cases, Net Choice v. Paxton and Moody v. Net Choice, that's Texas and Florida respectively, is expect- expected before July. Should the states prevail? There are two paths companies could take to comply, said Daphne Keller, who directs the program on platform regulation at the Stanford Cyber Policy Center. You know, I'm sure that's, I would consider that a quasi-government entity. The companies could pull their services out of Texas and Florida altogether, she said, as if that's a threat. This is me talking. As if that's a threat. It would be better. It would probably be better, she said, or they could comply. And just open the fire hose and send Texas and Florida the unmoderated tide of porn, spam, hate speech, pro-anorexia and pro-suicide content and other harmful or offensive online speech that they are asking for. The Florida one deliber- like expressly eliminates obscenity from what they're talking about. And if you read the laws, that is not what it's opening the door to. It's about political candidates. It's about transparency on moderation, et cetera. But, you know, if that is what they did, if Twitter decided, okay, this is what you're asking for, and Twitter is probably the biggest porn site in the world already anyway, I don't see it though. Why? You know, I'm thankfully being, you know, insulated from it. But if I weren't insulated from it, guess what would happen? I wouldn't use it at all anymore. So they can do that if that's what they want to do. But nobody would use it. And that's fine. We'd be better off. Because honestly, when you have a highly trusted curation function, it makes the user much more vulnerable. You let your defenses down. You're not actually curating it yourself in your mind. So uh, I think these the, the specific entities targeted by the Florida law, specifically, are government entities and should have to adhere to the Bill of Rights. That's my feeling. But I totally want you to hear this excerpt from Robert Barnes. I hope you enjoy it. And that's it. If you want to listen to any of this commercial free, don't forget, you can just hit the premium option on the Monica Perez Show feed on iTunes. And if you don't mind... And you like the show, please subscribe and rate The Monica Press Show on your favorite podcasting platform. So specifically, let's start, if you don't mind, with the free speech question. And this is a is something I've noticed across the board, which is, I call it this kind of reverse fascism, backdoor fascism, where, and I see with big tech and with big business now where they, the government couldn't actually limit your speech the way big tech does. And I, I think it's no coincidence that DARPA created big tech these and, and their laws and preferences so Section 230 created, uh, gave the door open to the monopoly in each of the niches, and then they want to take it away just when that door would close. But that they can get away with taking away your First Amendment when uh the government couldn't and i actually think that it's they they shouldn't so if if the grocery store requires that you're allowed to give out political flyers because they're protected by the police if i understand the i've read some of the cases then why is it that twitter with the patents that are they use are protected and other you know, government platforms maybe the internet itself why isn't it just uh inherent that they are supposed to consider it a public place and incorporate the First Amendment into that, you know, why can't, why don't they have to live up to that standard?
1: Well, I mean, really, it's a sort of a combination. I kind of see it in part as a function of, uh, you know, Michel Foucault and Noam Chomsky's explanation that the best forms of censorship are self-censorship, if you can create it. Foucault explaining our prison system, that it's a very sort of modern creation. And the reason why it's been created this way is to reflect broader goals of society. And that in our sort of uh, panopticon prison system is designed to also create self-censorship and self-control. And they've just extended that into the big tech space. Uh, And that the goal is for big tech to impose certain rules and patterns of behavior that get people to self-censor. And it works at a tremendous degree. They try to be selective at who they censor. So it sends a message to everyone else I better not talk about this. I better not use this word. I better not see uh, or reference this point. Now, from a constitutional perspective, my view has always been that we have established precedent going back to Marsh v. Alabama on the federal level, going back to the Pruneyard Doctrine in the state of California, which was to avoid the problem of of what happens if the state simply delegates its power to the private sector to get around the First Amendment limits on the state's conduct. Says, oh, we won't uh, limit your speech, but we'll make sure this other private entity, quote unquote, limits your speech. And the solution in Marsh v. Alabama and the solution in uh, Prunyard Doctrine goes all the way back to the problem of the company town. What happens when the company towns, the late 1800s, early 1900s, the way they decided they were gonna suppress and squelch labor activity is they just own the whole town. And not only did that help them manipulate housing prices and food prices so that they could raise, raise wa- lift wages, but also lift expenses so that they really weren't lifting wages. Um, but they needed to suppress uh, you know, the United Mine Workers especially. Uh, you had groups like the Molly Maguires traveling around, expressing themselves in unique ways in the la- labor context. And so they decided, we'll just own the whole company town. Then you can't petition. Then you have no right to petition for a labor union or any speech. That went up the a, a case that involved a different set of facts, but that was the background of what the Supreme Court was looking at, said, no, no, no. If you own the company town, if you own the public square, you are obligated by the First Amendment. And that to me was the, the combination, like people's legitimate concern was they didn't want the small author, the small social media brand to be governed by First Amendment restrictions because that would make it economically very difficult for them to manage to sustain And it would be kind of coerced speech at that level. On the flip side, like, you know, if Alex Jones had to leave up every statement of people hating him and libeling him because, you know, that would be a problem for him.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah.
1: So the the counterbalance to that, I always thought was, well, just limit it to who has monopoly power over the public square, because that's the concern. The concern isn't every social media company. It's these companies that are so big, they own 75 to 80 percent of the uh, public square in their space. And in, in and that context, that, yeah. they should have obligations.
0: And now once they did like the COVID not lockdowns, that is the exclusive pub- public square, which is a function of a government action, intentionally or unintentionally, the argument is they are the public square now.
1: We've just digitized it. That's all we've done. We've, and 80% of the real public square every single day is the digital public square. During the lockdown era, it was 95 to 100% of the public square. And so in that context, and, and all of these companies have monopolies. Now, some people think monopoly means 100%. It doesn't. Uh, under the antitrust law, it means about 75%. Uh, YouTube has over 90% of the relevant market share. Google has over 90% of the relevant market share. Twitter has over 90% of the relevant market share. So does Facebook. You know, MySpace is like 2%. I mean, its, it's competitors are tiny. Uh, so that was problem one. But problem two is what you point out which is the idea that these are private companies. The This is my argument with libertarians in general. I'm like, there are no true private. First of all, there, the idea of a, there's no such thing as a private company, because by definition, it's public. Because what it is, is I as an individual, a bunch of individuals, we don't want to be held responsible for a bunch of bad stuff we might do. So we get together and we get a special charter from the state that says Limited Liability Corporation or Special Purpose Corporation or whatever name. And that, you know, Nader has a lot of good criticism of this. When we go back, there's good documentaries on how corporations are designed to be psychopaths. When you understand their, the psychology of the structure of the organization, so to me, off the, right out of the gate, I don't have a, pr- a true private enterprise, true free enterprise is I can be held individually responsible for anything I do if I'm a stockholder in it, if for anything my business does if I'm a stockholder in it. So, if my view is, if you have special immunity from suit. Simply because you have formed in a corporation, then you, have, you, you don't have the same free speech rights that individuals have. Um, and you have certain obligations to protect free speech that, other, that individuals wouldn't. But putting that aside, in the, in the big tech context, this was created by taxpayer money. It was, it's been subsidized all the way through. It's been uh, immunized with patent protection, with trademarks with copyrights that have been enforced under international law, sometimes at the point of a gun. And it uses a massive infrastructure that go, that trespasses onto people's property in the form of cable wiring in the form of other uh, airwave access, which is publicly owned. So the idea that the internet and big tech is some sort of purely private entity is a fantasy. It, 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 it uh, only exists because of massive levels of public infrastructure, public subsidies, and public protection. So then why shouldn't we use that to I- include free speech protection for the people who use it?
0: And I would argue also that it's been the actual actors who are dominating their niches are have been curated by the Department of Defense through like MIT contests and research and stuff. You can actually trace back the specific people Who are playing. And I would also say behind the scenes, they're cooperating in the surveillance and censorship functions with the government if you could pull back the curtain on that. So it's it's, even worse.
1: And I have almost no doubt that if you dug into the investors of every major big tech company, you will find CIA CIA front companies seeding a lot of the original cash and still having a major role.
0: Yes, in QTEL. So what do we do? What, What can we expect from this? How do we beat it?
1: Well, the problem is the courts decided that Congress passing Section 230 meant they were supposed to never let big tech ever be sued again. And the, because of that, the courts are mostly closed. And I've told people, you know, take whatever shots you can, but for the most part, that's a long shot. And that it has to be legislative reform. So that means ultimately Section 230 is probably gonna have to be changed by Congress because even though, you know, governors in Texas and Florida are trying to take action, a court's probably gonna rule it's preempted by Section 230. And it's probably not going to allow that. Like what people don't know is Section 230, which is the immunity statute for big tech, has been interpreted to mean you cannot even pass criminal laws against big tech. You can't even enforce your own state's criminal laws against them. So that's how broad it is. Basically, they've said they're beyond the reach of any government except the federal government. And the federal government has said they're beyond our reach under Section 230. Justice Thomas wants to revise that. So I've encouraged people to take it up and maybe the Supreme Court will revisit it. But I think Amy Coney Barrett is gonna be a bad vote on this issue. She's a pro-monopolist kind of personality if you look at her political and legal history. And so I think our only hope is getting change in Congress and ultimately it's gonna be changing the presidency because uh, Biden. we're not gonna get veto-proof votes to overturn it. Now, the other area where suits are being successful is to go after them monetarily on antitrust grounds where they've done other violations of consumer rights, competitors' rights, and the like. So there are, I follow this, there's antitrust lawsuits being filed every single month somewhere in the country against Facebook, Google, YouTube, Twitter, Google owns YouTube these days, Uh, Facebook owns Instagram, so it's really the big three, Twitter, Facebook, and Google. Uh, They're facing class action lawsuits everywhere because they lied to competitors. They lied to advertisers. They lied to users. They stole users. They just got hit with a $650 million settlement fine in just the state of Illinois for violating people's privacy rights for illicitly tagging people. So uh, it's like where someone put someone's face and they would tag their name without them consenting. That's a violation of Illinois state law. Said that's 650 million bucks they got to pay out of the pocket. So that kind of money can be accumulated, you know, and that's just one case. So I'm hoping that these, the most successful way to tame big tech will come in developing more and more winning in the court of public opinion so that state court juries and judges are willing to whack them in these other cases that could financially cost them more than the free speech violations they've done.
0: I just loved talking to Robert Barnes. He's so smart. And I just love smart lawyers who are honest, who are on the right side of things. I just love it. I mean, this is a country of laws. And if we're going to win, that's probably really our only chance of maintaining our freedom is to just do it by the book. So anyway, I just think his insights are are so great. He's such a pro and maybe I'll get him back on. I really want to talk to Eric Buchanan about his opinion. I assume that he's got additional insights. Maybe he disagrees with us. I think Robert Barnes and I are kind of on the same page. Anyway, this is going to be an ongoing topic because the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on it yet. And when they do rule on it, it'll be pretty interesting. And there's actually another ruling coming down the pipe that we need to watch out for that is, um, in March, the Supreme Court will address a lawsuit filed by Missouri and Louisiana alleging that the Biden administration violated the First Amendment by leaning on social media companies to remove posts the government said were spreading misinformation during the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of the censorship goes to the fact that these social media platforms were abusing their privilege, their ability to curate information. So let's see how these cases turn out. Thank you so much for listening. This is Monica Perez.